Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 13, the Narvaez Expedition in Cabeza de Vaca, part two. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and we are recording this on March 18th, 2021, in the Crescent City, New Orleans, Louisiana, where the sound of brass, well-blown, is only now returning. You will recall that at the end of last week's episode, Panfila de Narvaez, some of his men, and all 42 of their remaining horses had gone ashore on the west coast of Florida, somewhere near Tampa Bay, in April 1528. There they had searched through a just-abandoned Indian village and fatefully found a rattle made of gold. Narvaez claimed the land for Spain and, it must be said, himself. As weird as these claiming exercises may seem to we moderns, it was especially weird in this case insofar as these Spanish thought they were in unexplored Mexico rather than the Gulf Coast of Florida. Yes, they were still within the vast territory granted by Emperor Charles V to Narvaez, but had they known where they were, they also would have known that this was territory Ponce de Leon had visited in 1513 and 1521, and no doubt managed to claim for Spain in the normal course of events. More hilariously, Hernando de Soto would land his expedition at roughly the same spot in 1539 and also claim it for Spain and, of course, himself. So Tampa Bay is pretty seriously overclaimed. Then again, there's an American flag on the moon, which I, for one, think is incredibly cool. So maybe we moderns shouldn't get too high and mighty about the staking of national claims after all. Over the next couple of weeks, Narvaez and his landing party explored the area. Just to the north, they found Tampa Bay itself, and shortly thereafter, they had their first contact with Indians who had not run away. These Indians were, per Cabeza de Vaca, in possession of many crates belonging to Castilian merchants, and in each one of them was the body of a dead man, and the bodies were covered with painted deer hides. Here we have the first of many misunderstandings. The Indians had treated the dead with great respect, wrapping them in valuable painted deer hides. But the friar Juan Suarez, in Professor Resendez's words, the would-be bishop of the Rio de las Palmas in Florida, thought that such idolatry was the work of the devil, and ordered the crates and the bodies burned. Not surprisingly, the Indians did not take this well. Under questioning undertaken by sign language, the Indians described a province very far away called Appalachie, quote, in which there was very much gold, and they made signs to indicate that there were very great quantities of everything we held in esteem. No doubt the Indians were saying whatever they thought necessary to motivate the Spanish to go elsewhere. Narvaez then made his most fateful and addled decision. He gathered the leaders of the landing party together, including Cabeza de Vaca, the friar, various other officials, and the usual notary. To this group, Narvaez revealed his intention to split the expedition in two. The idea was to bring all able-bodied men not necessary on the ships to shore, and march along parallel to the coast until they reached the Rio de las Palmas. The ships would sail along the coast and meet them at the mouth of that river. 
The only problem with the plan was that the Rio de las Palmas was by land roughly 1,500 miles away, which nobody in the Narvaez expedition knew or suggested. History does not record whether any of them had begun to have private doubts, given the location of sunrise and sunset and such. But if they had, they would have not taken up that argument with a determined Narvaez. There were, however, dissenters from the plan to leave the company of the fleet, including Cabeza de Vaca, according to his own account, years after the plan had been exposed as folly, for whatever that's worth. The main objection was not that they didn't know where they were, which should have been the main objection, but that they might not ever reconnect with the fleet. Narvaez would not be deterred and offered Cabeza de Vaca the option of staying with the ships, which Cabeza de Vaca declined on the grounds that he wasn't a chicken, more or less. His Andalusian sense of personal honor would cost him dearly, even if it would lead to his historical immortality. In the event, Governor Narvaez, of course, had his way. The rest of the available men came ashore. The ships departed and 300 Spaniards and 40-odd skinny horses were stranded in a world that was completely alien to them, unlike even Mexico. They carried rations enough for only a few days, two pounds of hardtack biscuit and a half pound of dried pork. The men were going to have to live off the land, as it were, and that ought to have been possible. In Professor Resendez's rendition, Narvaez's men spotted three types of deer, rabbits, hares, bears, lions, the largest feline would have been the Florida panther, geese, night herons, and other wild beasts, among them one that carries its young in a pouch, close quote. That last being, no doubt, the possum, and possibly one of the very first marsupials ever seen by Europeans. Although, to be fair, I suspect that conquistadors ranging through Central and South America at the time of the Narvaez expedition, also saw possums. Regardless, the Spanish didn't seem to capture much meat. The Spanish, it seems, were wretched hunters and would rely on Indians to bring them meat repeatedly, and not only during the Narvaez expedition. The failed settlement of San Miguel de Gualdape, which we talked about a couple episodes back, couldn't feed itself without imposing on Indians either, and neither would Hernando de Soto's huge army a decade hence. After several weeks of walking, they had not seen Indians for some time, and neither had they encountered fields of maize or granaries they could raid. The Indians were almost certainly, however, keeping them under surveillance. One day, a local chief and his entourage, complete with porters to carry the chief and flute players and such, walked right into the Navarra's camp as if they owned the place, which, of course, they did, actually. The chief and Narvaez traded gifts, Spanish bells and beads in return for the painted deerskin off the chief's back, and by signs, Narvaez questioned the Indians about the location of Appalachie. These Indians were, it seems, no friends of the Indians of Appalachie and all too happy to point the Spanish in that direction, which turned out to be in the location of modern Tallahassee. Now, the Indians of the Florida Peninsula were mostly hunter-gatherers, They occasionally planted maize and other crops, but had not built up the food surpluses and civic organization necessary to practice agriculture on a large scale. That meant they were useless or even vexatious to the Spanish, 
because they did not have big stores of food to be bought or looted. They did not have fixed settlements they needed to defend, and they were highly mobile and could flee on short notice. The Indians of Appalachia were different. They had access to fertile soil inland from the Gulf, planted maize almost certainly along with the other two sisters, beans and squash, in vast fields that generated the surpluses necessary to support big towns and complex social organization, the substantial hierarchy. In short, there would be something there, actually, to conquer. The Indians of Appalachia were part of a broader network of tribes that thrived between the Great Lakes and the Gulf in the fertile drainage of the Mississippi River and its tributaries between roughly 1000 A.D. and 1600. This Mississippian culture, as modern anthropologists call it, was far more advanced than hunter-gatherers in peninsula Florida and, as we shall see, the Texas Gulf Coast. With intensive agriculture, big populations, an organized, specialized, hierarchical social structure, an extensive trading network, and big edifices. The Mississippian culture began to decline for still unclear reasons even before 1492, and in many places it fundamentally vanished before Europeans arrived. You might remember our discussion of Cahokia all the way back in episode one, but Appalachia was still, in the early 1500s, a populous example of it. An arrival Indian chief had just pointed Narvaez and his 300 ambitious Spaniards straight at it. Narvaez and his men came within sight of an Appalachie village, probably a southern suburb of Appalachie proper. It was substantial by Florida standards, with perhaps 40 small houses, but a far cry from evidence of another Tenochtitlan or Cusco in La Florida. Narvaez ordered his soldiers to attack the village, but the native men had all gone elsewhere perhaps in search of migrating game. So the expeditionaries easily got control and started feasting off the granary. The expedition stayed at the village 26 days, during which the menfolk returned and began waging guerrilla war against them, seeking the return of their women and children. Narvaez agreed to a swap, the women and children, in return for the chief as a hostage, hoping to stem the attacks which nevertheless continued when men strayed from the village to reconnoiter the surrounding country. Eventually, the imprisoned chief persuaded the Spanish that they ought not to head to the west, which he knew, but the Spanish did not, would lead them right to the heart of the most populous Appalachian settlement, but instead south toward the sea, where there was a village called Ayote with a great deal of food and so forth. The increasingly dispirited Spanish seemed to have bought this story, perhaps induced to do so, by their desire to return to the coast where they might find the fleet. Unfortunately, the march to Eute was, per Professor Resendez, disastrous. Two days along, the expedition reached impassable swamps through which the Indians and their horses had to walk chest-deep in the water while Indian archers sniped at them. The Indians in this region of Florida were not nearly as technologically advanced as the great civilizations of Mexico and Central and South America, or even those along the Mississippi. But they did have one sort of hardware that the Spanish had not seen anywhere else in the New World. The longbow. Cabeza de Vaca, in his narrative, described Indian archery with an admiration that can only come from the passage of time. 
In this skirmish, some of our men were wounded in spite of their good armor, which was not enough to protect them. We had men who swore that on that day they had seen two oak trees, each as thick as a man's lower leg, pierced from one side to the other by Indian arrows. This is not so surprising in light of the strength and skill they have in shooting. I myself saw an arrow penetrate the base of a poplar tree six inches deep. All the Indians we had seen in Florida to this point were archers. And since they are so tall and they are naked, from a distance they look like giants. They are quite handsome, very lean, very strong, and light-footed. Their bows are as thick as an arm and 11 or 12 spans long. They shoot their arrows from a distance of 200 paces with such accuracy that they never miss their target. After nine arduous and increasingly lethal days, the now wounded, weakened, and sick Spanish reached Aote. It had been burned to the ground and abandoned with nothing to commend it but fields of the three sisters ready to be harvested. Food is good, but it wasn't a city gleaming with gold or silver, or even the most slender evidence of it. Indian arrows and some old-world disease, maybe typhus, had already knocked them down to 250 men from the 300 who had gone ashore in Tampa. Please note that I'm making good on my promise that the dying would start in this episode. So after some disputation, the Spanish headed onto the coast in search of the ships that could take them home, or at least back to Cuba. So what had happened to the fleet during the four months since Narvaez and his men had disappeared into Florida's interior? The fleet had left most of its supplies with a landing party, so it could not indefinitely patrol this coast that was now obviously not Mexico. Fortunately, just before he went inland, Navarro had dispatched Miroello, the pilot who'd gotten him into this mess, and a ship back to Cuba for more supplies. And despite his track record, the hapless slaver-turned-pilot had actually gotten back with food for the other ships. No doubt pushed on by the ten wives who had stayed on board while their husbands searched for the perfect neighborhood, perhaps a gated community and an excellent school district. The fleet searched for the Narvaez survivors along the coast of Florida for the better part of a year, to no avail. There is, however, one story from that search that reverberates down the years, so please forgive a short diversion. I'll let Professor Resendez set the stage. The search began right at present-day Tampa Bay. One of the vessels sailed inside the bay, where the crew noticed a cane deliberately stuck in the ground. It was split at the top and a letter perched in the cleft. The group concluded that this piece of paper contained crucial information, possibly left by Narvaez himself. The Spaniards spotted a group of Indians who were waiting along the beach and called out to them to bring the piece of paper out to the ships. They refused, and instead motioned for the Spaniards to come ashore. It was a tremendously risky proposition, but the letter could hardly be ignored. Two men, an 18-year-old from Seville named Juan Ortiz, and an older man whose name is not known, got in a rowboat and made their way to the beach. The Indians seized them immediately. The older man was killed in the ensuing scuffle. Juan Ortiz survived, but was taken hostage. Apparently, the split cane in the letter constituted a trap, 
astutely laid out by the Indians. It appears that when Narvaez and his men rounded the bay, they had abused the Indians, there's a shock, and cut off the nose of a native lord called Hirahigwa. This native leader had not forgotten this ignominy. When Hirahigwa saw the lone Spanish vessel in the bay, he carefully set up his bait with the cunning of someone bent on revenge. Do you know the Klingon proverb that tells us revenge is a dish that is best served cold? Such a shame the chief's name wasn't Khan. Anyway, poor Juan Ortiz would remain a captive and slave for the next 11 years, only to be liberated in 1539 by Hernando de Soto's men. The noseless Hirohigwu got his revenge, but you devoted listeners will learn that the consequences for other Indians years later would be bloody indeed. The survivors had reached the Florida coast somewhere between the St. Mark's River and Apalachicola Bay. A look at your favorite map app will reveal that the Florida coast in this region is characterized by shallow bays protected by distant barrier islands. The water was only waist-deep, Massive oyster reefs would have prevented the passage of ships that might have slipped through gaps to the inner bay. As Professor Resendez put it, after brutal marches, brushes with Indians, and bouts with debilitating illnesses, the survivors had reached a cruel dead end. For some days, they must have been overwhelmed by a sense of dejection and helplessness. I refrain here from telling this at greater length, Cabeza de Vaca wrote because each one can imagine for himself what could happen in a land so strange and so poor and so lacking in every single thing that it seemed impossible to be in it or to escape from it. The Spaniards needed a plan, both for food and a way out of Dodge. For food, to supplement the shrinking supply of the three sisters stolen from Ayute and nearby villages, and presumably oysters, They agreed to eat a horse every three days and thereby christened their beach the Bay of Horses. For their getaway, they agreed to build rafts that they could sail across the shallows to the open gulf where they might be spotted by a ship. And failing that, they would go west along the coast with the hope of reaching New Spain. To build the rafts, they needed tools. And to make tools, they needed iron. Resendez again. Stirrups, spurs, and crossbows. They all burned. In an extraordinary step, the men threw them into a hot fire and attempted to recast the hot clumps of metal into tools, mainly axes and saws. To produce enough heat to melt the metal, someone had devised a crude forge by jury-rigging a bellows out of deer hides. The pipes that drove the air out of the bellows were fashioned from hollowed-out logs. With now crude axes and saws refashioned from the melted iron, they had to build rafts adequate to transport 250 men, fresh water, such maize as could be scrounged, personal effects, and a few remaining weapons an indeterminate distance over the gulf. They had no shipwright and only one carpenter, a Portuguese man named Alvaro Fernandez, who almost certainly led the effort. They built five large rafts. It's worth considering these. 
If each person weighed 150 pounds and there were roughly 50 men per raft, the humans per raft would have weighed three and three quarters tons. Assuming that fresh water, food, weapons, and essential personal effects probably added another 50 pounds per person, each raft would have needed to support five tons. According to Cabeza de Vaca, these rafts were roughly 33 feet per side, or around 1,000 square feet. That implies around 30 thick logs per raft, lashed together with rope carefully braided from the hair and hides of the horses the Spanish were eating every three days. Fully laden, each raft would have weighed 15 tons. Resendez, to build five such rafts, the famished trekkers would have had to cut down about 150 mature pine trees, selecting the most appropriate trees, clearing the area around them, delivering hundreds of axe blows to each trunk, and running away from the falling giants must have been hard enough. And yet, felling the tree was merely the beginning of the process. They had to remove all the limbs, cut the trunks to the desired length, and drag the logs to the launching area. Even with properly manufactured tools, these tasks would have been overwhelming. Narvaez's men had to do all of this with crude axes and saws, racing against time as they consumed their last horses. In order to ensure that all the members of the expedition shared in this brutal and exhausting labor, the leaders proclaimed that only those who worked would have access to horse meat. It was, it should be said, no mean feat to get 16th century European gentry to do heavy lifting of any sort at any time. None of these people were egalitarian Americans, willing to pitch in regardless of station. And it wasn't merely because they were Spanish. John Smith would have to issue the same no-work-no-food order at Jamestown 80 years later, under circumstances nearly as dire. Again, quoting Resendez, once the logs had been gathered at the water's edge, the raft builders needed to devise a system to fasten them together firmly. But the group had no rope with them, so they had to make it themselves. They improvised once again by using the tough hair of the dead horses. Some members of the expedition must have spent countless hours gathering all the tails and manes of the dead horses, braiding the strands together into short sections of rope and then tying the sections to one another. A raft would merely drift, so they needed a way to direct it. They cut paddles, and on each raft erected a mast and a spar for a sail crafted from their worn shirts sewn together. In September on the Florida coast, then as now, shirts were decidedly optional. They had no receptacles for carrying fresh water and apparently no ready source of clay for making pottery. Instead, they carefully peeled away the hides from the legs of the slaughtered horses and fashioned them into long bags to hold, no doubt, skanky drinking water for the potentially long journey. We know all this happened not only from the joint report and Cabeza de Vaca's narrative, but a third important source, Hernando de Soto's expedition would reach the Bay of Horses 11 years later and would find heaps of bleached equine bones and the fire pits used to melt the iron just where the then-returned Cabeza de Vaca had said they would be. 
On September 22, 1528, after six weeks on the beach, working to exhaustion and vulnerable without their horses and weapons to attacks from Indians, the five literally ragged crafts set sail. We do not know precisely who was assigned to which raft, but our celebrated survivors are accounted for. Cabeza de Vaca was in joint command of one raft with another royal appointee, and Captains Alonso del Castillo and Andres Durantes were in charge of another. Esteban would also have been on the Castillo Durantes raft, insofar as Durantes was his master-in-law, even if not in brains or ability. Navice, not exactly a servant leader in the terminology of modern management gurus, cherry-picked around 50 of the strongest men for his own raft. Now, the journey west along the Gulf Coast was its own adventure, and in and of itself a hair-raising survival story. But for our purposes, we will hit only some of the highlights, which I am sure the raft people did not see as highlights. So we can hasten along to the, quote, discovery of Texas and Cabeza de Vaca's adventures there. And anyway, it will only be there that the body count begins to rise in earnest, which is what we have been waiting for anyway. One would have thought that the greatest risk faced by the Navais flotilla would have been hurricanes, given that they were sailing and paddling along the Gulf Coast in September and October. In the event, the weather seems to have been pretty good, and the most pressing threat was lethal thirst. The huge horse-leg canteens rotted quickly. There'd been no time or inclination or capacity to cure the hide before embarkation. So the castaways were always looking for safe places to go ashore to get fresh water. There were plenty of Indians along the coast. They could see the fires. So finding places with both potable water and no Indians was getting pretty difficult. Eventually, desperation changed the calculus. Several Spanish became so desperate that they drank seawater and died. So confronting Indians while weak from starvation and thirst and with very few weapons suddenly seemed like the least bad alternative. Eventually, the expedition had several violent encounters with Indians. And in one case, in the hope of getting some fresh water and food, served up a black slave and a Greek dude in exchange for two Indian hostages. We wonder if the Spanish used an entirely fair method for selecting the human collateral on their side. In any case, it didn't work. Neither set of hostages were returned. We do not know what happened to the black slave, but the Greek, one Don Teodoro, would live among the Indians for some period thereafter, and we will see his footprints in the sands of time a few episodes hence. The voyage also featured the second discovery of the mouth of the Mississippi River, a torrent of fresh water so fierce that the very thirsty Spanish could drink straight over the side, even though well off the shore of Louisiana. The Mississippi posed a huge risk, too. Had it pushed the rafts out of sight of the shore, they would have been lost, with no means to navigate or recover their bearings. As the fleet moved west of the Louisiana boot, it began to break apart. Some rafts had stronger men than others. Narvaez had selected his own companions well and pulled ahead of Cabeza de Vaca's raft, 
where most of the men were too weak from thirst and hunger to paddle or even hold the tiller. The growing separation eventually became isolation, which in turn ensured that the five rafts would land at different places along the Texas Gulf Coast. That dispersion of the expedition would raise the casualty rate considerably and immediately. Andres Resendez made a map to show the best guesses at the landing places of the five rafts, obviously based on information pieced together by the survivors in the years that followed. I'll put it in the show notes on the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, and in return, plug his excellent book, A Land So Strange, The Epic Journey of Cabeza de Vaca, which I do recommend both on its considerable merits and so he feels better about me using his map. All five rafts reach different parts of the Texas Gulf Coast, having traveled between 700 and 800 miles since leaving the Bay of Horses almost two months before. Cabeza de Vaca's raft and the raft commanded by Dorantes and Del Castillo landed on Galveston Island or near it. The raft that sailed the most southward landed on the barrier islands just off today's Corpus Christi and had traveled an astonishing 150 miles farther than the rafts that landed at Galveston. When Cabeza de Vaca last saw this raft just west of the Mississippi, which is hundreds of miles to the east, the passengers were out of food and water and headed into rough weather. Professor Resendez speculates that the men on the Corpus Christi raft must have resorted to cannibalism to make it as far as they did. In any case, they did not have to live long with their guilt. For the Camones Indians attacked the cadaverous survivors just after they landed, killing them all and taking their remaining trinkets and chattels for trade with other tribes. Consider us down another 45 or 50 Spaniards. The other two rafts landed apart from each other somewhere south of Galveston and north of Matagorda Bay. The northern of these two rafts made landfall near the mouth of the San Bernard River, their raft broken beyond repair in the event. The men decided to abandon it and continue on foot toward New Spain in the south, by my reckoning well over 400 miles by the coastline to the Rio de las Palmas, the original destination of the expedition. Not long thereafter, they encountered the fourth raft, if ranked by landing site from north to south, which had been commanded by Narvaez. Resendez imagines that this reunion must have been joyous, at least at first, but they had a problem. There were 80 or more men and only one raft to carry them south. That dilemma resolved itself more quickly than any imagined. Narvaez had, in Professor Resendez's words, granted himself the privilege of sleeping on his raft while the men camped on the shore, accompanied by only a helmsman and a page, presumably to protect himself from an Indian attack. One night the wind picked up and blew the raft out to sea without apparently anyone realizing what had happened. Resendez, it must have been a cruel awakening for the three men. From the raft, they must have been able to catch a final glimpse of the immense and hostile land that Narvaez nominally ruled. The vessel carried no food or water, so the three men could not have lasted long. But there must have been some time for reflection. Against all odds, Narvaez would not die of an Indian attack or a debilitating illness. Instead, in a supreme final irony, 
he spent his last hours confined to a small platform floating on the Gulf of Mexico and surrounded by the enormous territory that he had failed to conquer. The rest of the men from these two rafts continued south on foot, eventually stopping along the coast to dig in for the winter. They found a forested area with plenty of water, firewood, and some shellfish, but it wasn't enough to survive a harrowing winter even that far south. The living cut up and ate the bodies of the dead, one after another. By March 1st, 1529, only Hernando de Esquivel remained alive. An Indian found him alone, still feeding on the body of Sotomayor, Narvaez's successor in command. To take stock very briefly, the vast majority of the 240-plus men who had labored at the Bay of Horses, who had built rafts and fought Indians, who had battled thirst so consuming that some were driven to drink salt water knowing it would poison them, and who had sailed many hundreds of miles over the Gulf in hurricane season, actually came ashore in Texas. All the men on the three rafts that landed south of Galveston died within weeks and even hours after landfall, leaving 80 to 90 remaining on the two northern rafts out of the 300 who had landed at Tampa Bay in April and out of the 240 or so who departed the Bay of Horses at the end of September. We will learn the fate of these 80 to 90 in the next Cabeza de Vaca episode. Thank you for listening to the History of the Americans. Your feedback has been both useful and motivating, so please keep it up. In response to some of that, I'm going to do my first bonus episode, as it were. A number of you have asked for more context for the Spanish efforts in the New World and beyond. So, one or two episodes hence, we will step out of the timeline of our narrative and describe the wider world, all in the service of telling a better history of the Americans. In all events... Please rate the History of Americans on Apple if that's how you listen. And be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Thank you very much.